Welcome back to Arsenal Pass Time of the Round, episode 16. Today we're joined by Brian Gottlieb, co-host of the Competitive Magic podcast, Arena Deckless. Brian is also a broadcaster and writer for Star City Games. Anyway, Brian, welcome to the show, and how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing fantastic. Uh, I just want to say thanks to you both for having me on, and also for being kind of my Sherpas in in my (laughs) uh, quest to understand flesh and blood. You guys have been absolutely instrumental in getting me familiar with the metagame i will tell you straight up i listened to the uh tales of aria limited episode three times three times <laughs> wow. all the way through uh just really absorbing what y'all had to say and trying to get my head wrapped around the concepts you were putting forth and i i think it's working i mean the more i play the more i feel like i understand so i just want to say a huge thank you to you both before we even get any deeper in this uh endeavor you guys have been awesome yeah, we really appreciate that. It's awesome to hear feedback. Um, feedback that kind of makes it all worth it. I know I've been looking at your Twitter, and I remember seeing your your Gauntlet deck post where you had like you know I think it was like six class constructed constructed decks sitting out, and like that just gets me excited. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't I don't remember if it was six or eight, but I, I just lot. like it's growing. I, I wanted to know I wanted to know everything. I wanted to know how each hero played, and you know I I think. The hero system is a huge part of the appeal of flesh and blood. I'm sure we'll talk about that more. But just when I was in my exploratory phase, I'm like, I want to experience all of this. I want to know what there is to offer. And there was a lot. And every time I finished one deck, I'm like, well, I guess they're doing this one too. So that's that's the nature of this game. I think it's uh, yeah, you, one is not enough, two is not enough, three is not enough. Right. Um, right. I want to ask you know obviously a bit about how you've gotten into flesh and blood. But first of all, could you tell us a bit more about just yourself and um you know we um brennan said in the intro about the arena deckless podcast you and jerry have been podcasting from the magic side for a long time now can you tell us a bit more about your background in tcgs yeah so i am uh i I certainly qualify as an old head when it comes to tcgs i think i started magic in uh i i get it a little confused it was either 94 or 95 i'm pretty sure it was 94 um and obviously it remains a large part of my life to this day given all the content i make but uh i've dabbled in many 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 other tcgs both paper and digital throughout that time and you know in the 90s there was this huge rush when magic showed up and everyone wanted to cash in and i played a bunch of those games so star trek star wars uh wyvern rage there's just like dozens and dozens of these ultimately forgettable tcgs that i still experienced at that time uh and magic was really the only one that had any kind of staying power in my life and i certainly came and went with magic but uh around like 20 11 i got my first taste of competitive magic and i was super fortunate that the first ever competitive tournament i ever entered it was a gp uh, a grand prix which is kind of like an kind of like a calling basically yeah. if you're not familiar with the magic system uh i did really well and i qualified for my first pro tour at that and then it just kind of hooked me on the highest levels of the game and uh, i focused on my career for a while I, I was a lawyer for a few years and with law school and doing that that kind of had my focus, but I would always keep one foot in the magic world. And I was on and off pro tours and never really made like a full run of it, but certainly was always around. Uh, And then just one day I I had dabbled in a little bit of content here and there, you know, wrote articles for smaller sites, did like four or five episodes of my own podcast once. And then one day uh, my friend Jerry Thompson reached out and was like, do you want to uh, hop on my podcast? I'm running my co-hosts are leaving to go work at Wizards. I said yes, 
and it kind of all snowballed for that from there and the next thing i knew uh that podcast just really took off uh we got a great response it was called the game podcast back then now called the arena decklist podcast uh but we just kept getting more and more fans and then i transitioned that into a writing job with star city games and i started writing about magic and then i transitioned that into a broadcasting job with again with star city and you know doing play-by-play for magic and now it's been uh over three years where i've exclusively been doing magic content and that was not my i wouldn't say it wasn't my goal because it was in the back of my head but i didn't think it was going to break quite that way i'll be honest with you yeah just just happened and um you know i know you have a lot of fans out there and especially your uh your broadcasting on the cg tour and uh you know people, people love what you do how, how long has um you know the arena decklist podcast like i said formerly the game podcast been going because i feel like ever since i've definitely lived in australia i know that, that you two have been uh, podcasting it's hard for me to pin down exactly how long we do, we've been doing it i i think jerry and i have been doing it for probably four years at this point yeah uh, and there existed a combination. Our friends, Andrew Brown and Michael Majors were on the podcast with Jerry before that. And they did about a year before I came on board. So the podcast has been around for like five years now, which in, uh, the magic podcasting space is almost forever. Like there's, there's two or three other ones out there who have even more longevity than us, but a lot of podcasts come and go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm sure we'll see that in the flesh and blood space too. Cause as you both know, it's a ton of work to show up every week. Like it, it seems easy. You're just talking about the game you love, but you need to have interesting topics and guests and just the temerity to show up week after week. So it, it, it's tough. It's a challenging job. Yeah. I'm sure you did. Um, well, I just want to say real quick, I think that that's one of the best things about having a co-host is that you do have that other person to motivate you. Um, like I kind of reflect on where our soul pass has come so far and it's only been, you know, it's probably closing in on a year here decently soon. And I think that, you know, it is a lot of personal work, but the thing that has definitely allowed us kind of allowed me to stay committed and grow this to what it, you know, what it has become, what it will become is definitely like Hayden, because having that co-motivation and that person to keep you accountable is awesome. But I'm sure you kind of experienced the same thing in, um, on Arena Decklis. Oh, a- absolutely. It also just helps that like Jerry's one of my best friends. It's it. If we didn't have a podcast, I would call him up to talk about nonsense and magic probably every single week anyway. So the fact that we just get to record that uh, with a little, little bit more polish, it it sometimes makes it feel uh, a little easier in, in those moments where it's like, oh, I really don't want to record today. But you find a way because it's like, all I really have to do is go talk to my friend. Like, that's not so bad. Me and, uh, me and Brennan, you know, we, we probably talk. We, I mean, we, we see each other a lot, <laughs> even though we live in, in different countries and different time zones. I mean, we, we talk every day, see each other every day, which is, uh, you know, when we met, what? Yeah, like you say, this part of a year ago, I didn't expect that to uh, that to happen, and now uh, every every morning I wake up, I see his face, uh, whether I want to or not. So same, yeah, blessed, uh, truly yeah, blessed. We, we do his mornings and my mornings, so I'm up at like five thirty, and then we start testing for three hours, which is, you know, as long as we we are competitive players, that's probably going to be a consistent schedule. But then after the you know kind of the commitment to testing and trying to maintain being good at the game, um, Hayden and I, you know. Right after, you know, he goes to sleep, he wakes up real early in the morning and then we do the Arsenal Pass stuff. So it's definitely a grind now, but um, it's interesting where it's it becomes so repetitive that it's like meditative in a sense where there's like this thing that you've remained disciplined to and that you do kind of no matter what. And it's like very calming and rewarding in some some kind of you know existential way, I guess, not to get too philo- philosophical. <laughs> no, I, I get that entirely. And for for years, I was a distance runner. Unfortunately, I've had some injuries oh, lately. Awesome. 
but like it, it's very much the same type of thing where the actual thing you're doing in that second isn't always pleasant, but the collective of just like having this body of work, it starts to mean something more than just the action of putting together the cast. Yeah. I want to know um, before, I want to ask you about, you know, how you got into Flesh and Blood, but what distances did you run? Because I always find to your point, you know, distance running fa- uh, fascinating just because like the mind of a, you know, body like aspect is just, it's crazy. So the, my peak was I was, I was training for my first marathon and I actually uh, broke my collarbone snowboarding basically right before I was going to do the marathon. So the longest run I did as part of my training was 21 miles. And that's, that's as far as I've ever gone in my life. I've done plenty of like half marathon distances and things like that. Um, but I never actually completed the marathon. And unfortunately, my injuries kind of snowballed from there and didn't get back to that level ever. So that, that was basically where I peaked. Uh, I, it doesn't look like I'm going to be able to get back to it. Just like cumulative wear and tear on knees and ankles has kind of caught up with me. Um, but I, I still miss it all the time. It's, it's really weird not having that be a big part of my life. Snowboarding too. I guess if you, you were on the, uh, the West coast, right? So you had the the best of both worlds there. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Whistler actually was where I (laughs) broke my collarbone up in British Columbia. So Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've been to Whistler, so that's yeah. a cold place. It is. It's very cold. <laughs> is it cold? I uh, I like historically, like I kind of like as I grew, when I was younger, I always hated the cold. But now that I'm living in Texas again um, and experiencing the summers, I'm like, oh gosh. I mean, like we talked about this before we headed on the pod. It's like, you know, very much considering moving to Seattle, I was like, I, I want the cold. So, but I remember when I went to Whistler, it was like negative nine yeah. or something. Oh, Whistler, Whistler's intense. Seattle mm. is more like the thing I like about Seattle is that it's always hoodie and shorts weather yep. except for like 10 days a year yeah. the rest of the time you get by you put on your hoodie you put on your shorts or i mean you can wear pants if that's your thing i personally prefer shorts but like mesh shorts and a hoodie 365 days a year that's my jam right there that's where <laughs> i want to be it's like yeah it's like living back home in new zealand is like that sometimes or well, most of the time actually <laughs> which is yeah. great um brian i wanted to ask about how you found out about flesh and blood and how you got into it because from you know, I was uh, pretty shocked actually to find out that you know uh, you were you were dabbling in flesh and blood, and um, we talked about this before we jumped on the pod. But you put up a picture of like some dickless you you sort of had you some dick, sorry that you had the new heroes. So um, you know, obviously in the past few months, it's it's come to be something that you've gotten into. And how did that happen? I wish I could point to like an exact moment where I was just like, "Yep, time for flesh and blood." <laughs> I mean, maybe it was actually the announcement of the pro circuit and finding out the details of exactly how that would work. Uh, You know, again, for people who aren't familiar with the magic space, there's kind of this, I don't even want to call it a rebuilding. Uh, Maybe a dismantling is more accurate of uh, a very long established competitive scene. Uh, And I I do think something is ultimately going to replace it, but basically things have changed dramatically from how they were for the 20 plus years I've played this game. Uh, and and basically, flesh and blood kind of just like, well, we'll take that system. That was that was a really good system. It seems like we should go ahead and do this. Uh, and so at that point, I was like, well, maybe it's time to see if this game is about something. And certainly, I'd heard of flesh and blood. Like, it's hard to be in the TCG space and not hear of it. But uh, I'll be frank, a lot of what I heard was either bad or just like finance related Mm -hmm. like these cards are selling for so much money how is this possible nobody plays this game and i'm sure you guys have been around that heard that seen it uh and 
I, I think to be fair, that was my perception of flesh and blood. Like, what is this bizarre thing? I've never seen a human actually play it. Uh, so I was like, okay, it's, it's time to, for me to see if there's something here. And I went to my local game store. I purchased the Monarch Blitz decks, which they had in stock, sat down to play. And I was like, not only is this game entirely real, it's kind of brilliant. And it's brilliant in a way that isn't just parroting magic. And I think that's the most special thing about Flesh and Blood. And if you look at like TCG history, it, it's, I think it's going to serve the game well. Because if you look at the things which have had this kind of, uh, I wouldn't say equal, nothing has a run equal to magic, but on the same playing field. I think it's just Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh! And neither of those games really plays anything like Magic. Like, certainly they derive a lot of their value from their tie-ins. Like, their cartoon properties are, are very worthwhile. Um, but, but still, I, I've played both those games. I think they're both decent games. I don't love either of them, but I, th I think they're both decent. And they're separate from Magic. Whereas you go to things like, maybe this is more the digital space, but like Hearthstone, Legends of Runeterra, there's always like... Even if it's not directly derivative of magic, there's always elements of magic present. Like combat feels yeah. very similar or, you know, there's a, a mana system. And granted, like flesh and blood has its resource system, but it's so different from the way magic approaches things. And it's also the thing that strikes me is it's in the inverse of magic where you begin the game at high resources and you work down to lower resources as time goes on. And that's so fascinating because it flies against so much of I would say the baseline game design mm. knowledge. Like you think about games like League of Legends, the whole thing is you're supposed to get more powerful as the game goes on and have that moment where you've completed everything. And I think Flesh and Blood sort of works in the opposite, but makes it work. And it, taking something that isn't really like supposed to work as a game concept and finding a way to make it way more interesting than a lot of the comparable stuff, it's so cool to me. And I, I appreciated it right away after playing a few games. Yeah, yeah. What I love is that the the player controls the power as you go to the the later stages of the game because the pitch is known, right? Right. So the idea of managing the resources of your deck, whether it be the power level or the exact order of the cards and the cards you want to be strung together as you draw them in the later parts of the game, it's uh, the impetus is on the player to create that situation. Which was there was um, I don't want to go too off kind of off topic, and I'm sure we'll get there eventually. There's one thing I read in one of your Twitter kind of uh, I don't know if you call it a review or what. We talked about variants, so Flesh and Blood obviously kind of have has a sort of low variance aspect to it, and you know a lot of people praise that and they really want that. And when we have you know um, variants come into the game, like in Monarch or through Chain, there's like this pushback. But it is true that for a game to succeed, there has to be variance, right? It has to not be chess. And I think there was something you said is like everybody talks about that they. You know, they want low variance, but you don't actually want that. And my biggest concern for Flesh and Blood for a while there was that maybe the variance would be too low. And, there, you know, there would be either, you know, a skill level or a group of players that would become too dominant or it wouldn't be fun for other players. And I think that that isn't what turned out to be true. But the saving grace before I kind of realized that that wasn't going to be the case was that I think Flesh and Blood is fun a lot of the times, even if you lose, right? Because mm. Flesh and Blood games are often not close. Um in kind of like the finite resolution, but on life, they can be quite close, like almost every single time. And I remember when you first start playing, it's always like, I was at one, they were yep. at one, and then you <laughs> yep. all this. But um, yeah, and I think that's like one of the greatest parts. Also, that ties into the role-playing aspect. You know, people identify with their characters, but the fact that the game can be fun and you don't have to win it every single time, 
um, is really important. And I think, you know, actually Vegas showed that um, there isn't going to be kind of a singular group of players or a player that's going to be extremely dominant because they can manipulate, you know, a low variance game to suit them kind of every single time without fault, which I think what I heard from other people is that that has happened in other TCGs and has led to their downfall. Yeah, uh, the one that always comes to mind uh, as far as that goes was like the versus system TCG. Mm, that uh, was based the one around, I yeah. Yeah, based around the Marvel characters. And it was essentially a no variance game and the same people won every event. And it, it that was certainly a big concern of mine when I, first of all, got familiar with like the competitive scene in Flesh and Blood and found out about Matt Rogers, who was just like winning every event basically. And uh, at least at the exact moment where I was starting to understand like the road to nationals metagame and seemingly picking his hero at random and just going ahead and winning one of those events every week. Uh, it, it gave me a moment of concern, but I, I do think like there is enough variance that the better player certainly has an edge. I, mm -hmm. I don't question that. But like you said, the fact that you can still have a good experience in the loss and if there's just like that, 20% chance for me to be a great player, even at my experience level right now. I think that's enough to keep me going. It just can't go to zero. That's the whole mm -hmm. thing. Like if you end up at zero, the game's buried and done. And I don't think that's the case. So yeah, you, you don't want to be showing up to an event and whether you parallel this to a calling or it be, you know, like a regional event, like a, a road to nationals or um, even a skirmish, even an in-store event, right? You don't want to show up and be like, well, um, I'm probably hoping for an X2 record. Like I'm hoping to win a few games. Like that's never where you want to be if you're going, you know, purposely traveling to an event or you always want to have, even if it's this small percentage chance, you want to have a chance to to win, right? You want to have the ability to run hot on the day or, you know, to play really tight on the day, play some of the best games you've played and, and, and win an event, right? So I think that there's like a real, like you said, there's a line, right? You straddle this line between uh, like, is it, not enough you know the variance level is it too much variance is it is it just the right right amount for you know the best players to get an edge but for uh everyone to be to feel this ability to win games um which i think is yeah i think we've we've seen it kind of move across that line as the sets have come out um and you know it feel to me it feels like they're probably on the right side of it but it's definitely some of the the concerns i know that me and brendan have talked about it multiple times and it's it's interesting you talked about versus system because I know for a fact that a lot of the uh, developers in this game have played versus and it was a big part of their TCG sort of, I guess, um, history and, and upbringing. And you can really feel it, I think, in the game that there is some aspects of, of how versus system has certain uh, design elements, whether it be something like we saw uh, even in Monarch with like the soul uh, with cards tucking under other cards like we've seen elements they've pulled from other tcgs right they're, they're not afraid to say we'll take this from magic we'll take this from versus we'll take this from other tcgs so it's a really interesting sort of melting pot that they've pulled together yeah i've sensed that as well yeah and so you so you went and put the monarch, monarch decks up just going back to you i guess you're getting into flesh and blood uh which hero did you actually start with that's uh that's an interesting one which hero was the first one of those monarch decks that you were like this is this is what's sort of telling me about the game i like this I think it was Bolton that really like resonated with me. And I, I don't know that I can tell you why I just like, I, I don't know the, the concept of like soul I thought was pretty cool. And uh, you know, the resource management involved, it's hard for me now that I've played so much uh, flesh and blood since that point to really remember like how the Bolton blitz deck operates. Um, but something about it at least hinted at the potential for there to be a lot 
buried in this game for me to kind of unwrap. I also remember enjoying the Levia deck as well. Uh, you know, like managing blood debt seemed interesting. Uh, sorry, that chain did not immediately appeal to me. I, I'm, I've actually kind <laughs> of been and <laughs> I've kind of been anti-chain during all my time with the game. Even from like a constructive perspective, it's one of the decks that I didn't spend a lot of time on. Not because I didn't believe what y'all were saying about how good it was. I absolutely believed it. Uh, it's just so separate from like what I had already established as the core of Flesh and Blood. Uh, it's like if if Dredge was the best deck in Magic during Magic's first two years of existence. That's kind of the vibe I got from Chain. So we yeah. were we were anti-Chain as well, surprisingly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but we are we are to an extent kind of meta slaves. Chain was sure. really Chain's Chain was really though. Um, he was different than kind of any other powerful strategy you've had in the game. He was fundamentally better than kind of everything in my opinion like over 50 on everything the the one redeeming quality of the chain deck was um into control specifically fatigue um you could craft a game plan that was you know would kind of bring that matchup to an extremely low variance and in your favor and to do so was one of the most complicated things i've ever done in flesh and blood and was the most rewarding thing that i've you know kind of practiced and put a lot of reps into and then was able to replicate well, pretty much every time so that was that was, you know, the redeeming quality of it, but I am very happy that it is gone. And, you know, we're back into an open meta that might be more, a little bit more rock, paper, scissory, and so much, so much to explore now. Yeah. The, the experience of, uh, sorry, Hayden, go ahead. No, no, you go, you go, Ryan. So, so the experience of like solving the puzzle during the deck building and pre gameplay stage uh, really reminds me, and I, I don't want to spend too much time talking about magic, but it reminds me of the most recent companion mechanic in magic, which when it was debuted uh, was super interesting. And the puzzle of like solving the deck building was awesome. And then you got to the point where you played the games and they played out all the same and companions ultimately had to be completely changed uh, how they functioned because they invalidated so many aspects of the game that had come for uh, decades before. I mean, it went back to the oldest possible formats of Magic. And that's kind of the vibe I was getting from Chain, is that, like, there's a puzzle here, and it's a really cool puzzle to solve, but once you solve it, a lot of the coolness gets sucked out of the problem. Yeah, it's, it's not like solving... Uh, you talked about Livia, which is one of my favorite heroes that's been, you know, published in the, you know, in the last year, and that's similar in some ways, right? Like, you have, you know, your your Blood Dead resource, you have this uh, other sort of zone that is a resource but it's uh it's in a different way the management is i think a bit more, is more difficult for starters uh and also your your games can look very very different with that that hero depending on on how you play it which is uh, like a really cool aspect i think of, of levia's design and i hope we see hope we see more uh more levia in the future that's for sure same same yeah right i wanted to ask as well uh you know obviously Started with the Monarch decks, played some games. Um, we've, you know, well, we're almost six months removed from Monarch, and we're now into Tales of Aria. What was next? Because I've seen you post a lot of, you know, obviously you've you've been cracking boxes, you've been cracking packs, you've been building decks. Like, what was your movement after Monarch? Like, how? What did you start doing after that? Did you start building class constructed? Did you play small blitz? Yep. Did you start playing limited? Yep. Classic constructed was was my next jump. Uh, just because the metagame was developing. I've, I was listening to y'all. It was obviously the focus of the community at that point. So uh, that's where the most information was. So it made sense for me to just go uh, and explore those decks. And also, uh, at that moment, I certainly hoped that I would be getting ready to participate and try and find my own road to nationals and uh, you know get more familiar with the organized play system. And it didn't quite work out that way. 
But regardless, once I started exploring the classic constructed metagame, I, I realized how much depth was there and, uh, you know, how, how much the uh, individual heroes started speaking to me and, like, how I wanted to learn everything about, like, oh, well, how does Katsu deal with this? And, uh, you know, is this really how Dash is approaching this matchup? And those individual things started just screaming to me for more exploration. So I was just then grinding a gauntlet basically and playing every uh, competitive constructed matchup I could just to, just to learn, not with really like goals of mastering a matchup, just like understanding how does all of this work. That's a really cool approach. Is there any, any heroes in particular that have, you know, really stood out to you that you really identify with either from like a, a play pattern perspective that remind you of, you know, things in other TCGs that you've really enjoyed and you just, you know, you, you like playing those heroes? Yeah, so uh, I mentioned Katsu. Katsu's one that really, uh, the the aggro Katsu, Katsu builds in particular, I love the feel that you're putting your opponent in a vice. Like, you just leave them with no good options because your chains can get so out of control so quickly if they find the wrong block or if they ever, like, try to find their pivot turn and are willing to let you go. You, you can go so hard in so many spots. Um, and knowing when to do so, I thought was really interesting. Seeing how the, the Katsu decks were capable of playing so many different game plans, ultimately I settled on, like, finding a real affinity for aggro katsu but still the fact that they were able to have control katsu and these mid-range katsu builds it was so cool to see the flexibility of the hero despite doing like kind of fundamentally the same stuff with the exception of like you know a a 12 card package which changed everything the entire matchup and how you would play it so uh that was the first hero that really spoke to me and then i just like i find bravo super interesting for its like big spell potential like it's it's kind of dumb and straightforward in a lot of ways and like the the goal feels to always do the biggest thing possible until it's like play defense and then look for the biggest thing possible and then play defense and it it has this kind of really natural ebb and flow which also i think fits the character really well yeah does it remind you of when i first started playing the game it reminded me of like kind of older style ramp decks from from magic that would that would do some evil titan yeah evil titan was the first thing i thought of for sure (laughs) Yeah, which is uh, is really cool. Um, I wanted to ask as well, you know, why we're talking about heroes and mechanics and things like that. Um, you know, you have an extensive history in, in trading card games and, and Magic and other games like you said you've played. What are some of the, I guess, the key differences, do you think, in, in Flesh and Blood or some of the, the mechanics that you think work really, really well, com- you know, comparative to other games or that have, you know, been iterative on other games you've seen in the past that you think are just going to help for the longevity of this game? Yeah, I, I mentioned the sort of reverse resource flow that I feel where y- your life total, and certainly this happens in magic as well. You think of concepts like chump blocking and uh, spots where you're put on the defensive, but the fact that as your life total decreases, your options kind of decrease, and then you know maybe you burn your equipment in a certain spot and you have less options that way, and the fact that you're kind of getting to this narrow point, well, I do think it can occasionally lead to end games that feel... Uh, a little bit rehearsed like breaking out of that rehearsed pattern is a a really cool challenge and a a really cool problem to solve basically in every game you play um so i i think that's really appealing uh the resource system is is strong as far as i can tell i think it is like a appropriate amount of both variance and uh consideration that you have to put forth in deck building um trying to think of other things that really stood out to me I guess, I guess, again, to make a magic comparison, uh, I, I believe you both are, are legacy fans. 
So mm -hmm. I'm sure you're familiar with like <laughs> some more than others. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, I, I, so I'm guessing you're familiar with like storm decks. Yep. P playing games of flesh and blood to me feels like both players have a storm deck in their hand, but you can also use your storm resources to disrupt your opponent's storm. And you're supposed to figure out on every turn, well, how much defense, how much offense and mm. how hard can I storm? And like, that's really reductive. And if you are only a Magic fan listening to this, which I, I hope I can bring some Magic fans to your uh, your work and people can maybe find the game from here. And if you're only a Magic fan, that probably doesn't sound great to you. But there's so many wrinkles to it that it really doesn't do it justice. It's just kind of like a surface explanation of what's going on. Can I, I want to pick up on that because I think as, um, you know, myself and Brendan, both Magic players, uh, yourself, of course, Brian, Magic player, what... Do you think are some of the things that you know if, if you were pitching this to another magic player what are some of the things you think from a, a player of mtg you think is is probably really appealing uh, about flesh and blood and uh, as a game uh resonance I, I think that's the thing that magic has always done better than any other game is that the things that are represented in magic feel like what they're supposed to your flying dragons feel huge and they fly and, you know, kind of like dominate over the battlefield and they have the fire breathing effect and all of it just, I don't know if it's just because I've spent so much time in magic, but it all just has always felt right to me. Like from the first time I ever played magic, your drudge skeletons putting themselves back together and regenerating. Like, that's right. That's what fantasy skeletons are supposed to do. Flesh and blood does that in a way that I don't think any other TCG besides magic has actually done for me. Like if, if I play the Pokemon TCG, Pikachu doesn't feel like Pikachu to me, right? Like that just, it, it doesn't click. I don't know what it is about the abilities, but it's it, it doesn't feel representative of the thing it's trying to invoke. Whereas flesh and blood feels like this kind of all out battle between two combatants that are uh, appropriately armed and then wear out their equipment as the fight goes on and, uh, you know, get exhausted and have fewer options and cling to their last desperate chances in battle. Like... I know that's being very dramatic about it, but it all works. It all feels right to me. And no other TCG has really done that for me. I think you, you see that by people who really identify with certain heroes in this game, right? Mm -hmm. Like sure. they've got a main hero. They've got a, a second main hero. They don't like a particular class because in traditional, I guess, the traditional RPG sense, it just doesn't appeal to them, right? Like that's never the sort of person I would want to be if I was, you know, going through a game or going through a world. Like that's not something I identify with. Whereas on the flip side of that, I, you know, we have people who are really passionate about, you know, certain heroes and we've got our Azalea fans out there who, you know, live and die on that Azalea Hill who are the biggest fans and, and I get it. Like it's it's such a, you know, all the heroes feel different as well from a mechanic standpoint, right? To the point where if you don't like one mechanic, that, that's fine. There's other there's other heroes that you can play uh, and that's it's quite a nice feeling to be able to, even if you want to play more than one, then to bounce between those mechanics and explore those, those heroes and their uh, sort of their differentiations. Yeah, that sense of identity is is going to serve this game so, so well. Because it took magic actual decades to develop that. And it manifested in the commander scene, which is now mm -hmm. the primary way of playing magic. One of the reasons why competitive dinosaurs like myself are like, uh, I'm not so sure this game's going to continue serving me, uh, is because the focus on commander has gotten so intense for good reason. I mean, that's what people have really, really bonded to. And immediately I could see the same type of things happening with flesh and blood, as you mentioned, people really cling to the the heroes they identify with, and that that seems like a small ancillary thing if you're like a diehard competitive player. Like 
I usually am, but I know enough about this business now, having been around it long enough to know that is probably the best thing that this game has going for it. Yeah. Yep. One of the things that makes me the most hopeful by far, and I experienced this kind of firsthand when I was in Vegas. And it was not something I'm used to because um, I don't play locally as much um, just because I don't really have the time. And then we obviously also have our um, kind of our testing time and the Arsenal pass time takes up a lot. So I don't get really, I don't really get to interact with a lot of these players who kind of play it from that angle. And I remember just a lot of the people that I met, they were just there to, you know, to play it. They brought their warrior deck and like, that was, that was a class that they identified with. And, you know, it, all these kind of considerations of meta chain, all, all of that doesn't matter because they just had fun playing warrior and being the warrior. And I think that's like, that makes me very hopeful for the game moving forward. It's like, um, you know, we look at the, the success of commander and matches gathering I feel like part of me wants to be like, okay, how do we kind of recreate that in Flesh and Blood? Maybe not with as much of a company emphasis on it, but we need that. We need that casual player base because that's ultimately what lets you know us who want to be competitive. That's just, that lets us do what we want to do. Right. And um, yeah, it makes like I think that the current system is really strong. Where it leads to in terms of like how casual gameplay or kind of tabletop plays out in the future, whether there is like an ultimate pit fight. Or just like Blitz becomes just kind of that thing that you pick up your deck and you play your friends with. Um, that's still kind of to be decided, but the foundation is there, right? Yes. Yeah, I, I think LSS is going to have to find their own way. I don't think like, obviously, I have never participated in an ultimate pit fight. My read on it is that I don't think it's going to work. But that's okay. It, it doesn't have to be the same thing as Commander. There is a way to still make your game uh, casual and exciting that doesn't hit on those things. And the, the other way they're doing that too is like this hero system is great for identity, but it's also good for letting players come and go, right? Like mm -hmm. if you're a Katsu player, you, you can skip Tales of Aria, right? Like if that's all you care about, this is a set you can sit out. And that's a little scary from like, I want to sell all my packs, but like that's a good argument to make your limited environment really good and your sealed environments really good uh, and always have, you know, something to chase. Is it, you know, is, is a fable going to keep everyone interested? Probably not, but I bet you'll get some casual packs cracked as people try and chase that one thing. So I think there's a very unique thing going on with a no rotation game that doesn't make cards for every deck in every set. And that's not something I really can think of an analog for. Like, I don't remember yeah. any other game trying to do that. And if they nail this, and it's going to be really hard because it requires a immaculate sense of balance how far to push boundaries how to keep things interesting without invalidating everything that's come before i mean we see that in magic that's a challenging thing to do but if they nail this they have an opportunity that i i just don't think many other tcgs have had because they do have this foundation of a, a non-rotating game that not every single card has to be considered in every single deck and if the welcome to wraith heroes remain competitive for 10 years they've done something really special. Yeah. yeah, I think the the design of Tales of Aria is really interesting um, and pivotal in kind of the game's uh, development and identity. And it's, it's the first set where you can truly sit it out. Like there is no generic to chase. There really is. Like if you are, um, you know, are playing kind of any of the heroes that are represented in the set, you can totally just not even buy into it. And whether, my question is, is like, 
But what I wonder is if this is good, like, because it's net positive to the player base. I mean, it feels net positive as being a player. Maybe it is, maybe there is a negative aspect where people kind of aren't, you know, bought in or there isn't always that carrot to chase. So some people fall away. But is this a scalable model? And is this something that they should keep doing? Because, you know, like you said, the only, like, one of the main things that's going to be motivating sales after that is just going to be the limited format. Um, so I think that that's kind of a, an experiment that Legendary Studios is doing. Um, it's probably core to their values, but I'm interested to see how that plays out over a few years. You said something really interesting there, which is core to their values. And I, I think that's what it all comes down to, because if you think about how magic has expanded in recent years, and this is, this is not to naysay the path they've taken. I think they've done a lot of really smart things from a business perspective. But I, trust me, I personally know this very well. Every time you do something from a business perspective, you're usually giving up a little bit of your soul, a little bit. Like there's always a little piece of that wrapped into it. And, you know, making a bunch of variants for your game can be giving up a little bit of your soul or uh, making sure you're pushing power level because you know that will sell packs can give up a little bit of your soul or abandoning the kind of competitive core that you've always focused on in service of things that are making you more money. Well, is that giving up part of your soul? I'm, I'm not really sure on that one. Like, it's still obviously the core game, but you're doing something different. And ultimately, if LSS says to themselves, we are satisfied with the number of packs we are selling, we have this company, we employ a bunch of people, we love what we do, we love what we make, we're passionate about it, and we don't need to sell... 10 million boxes of the next set. If that's where they fall, I, I think you can go ahead and, you know, pursue whatever model best serves this kind of ideal version of the game. But business always rears its head. And it's, it's always a balancing act. So we'll have to see where they fall on that spectrum. Are they going to want to have a reason for players to be involved at every single set? Or are they comfortable with this model? And uh, from a player perspective, I love this model. I think it's brilliant. Uh, but I can also identify the financial downsides of it too. Yeah, I will, I will keep flying this uh, this flag in terms of Tales of Aria, but it's a, it's a brave decision for, for players, but it's a much, much braver decision from a business standpoint to, to make the decision they right. have. And, and to your point, yeah, I mean, if this is their core, one of their core philosophies and this is how they take the game, then, um, you know, they are, they are really, I guess, showing up for the fact that they are player first, right? Like they have, the, as if, constantly said we are player first we are players making a game for players and um you know we'll, we'll see what happens i'm i'm optimistic that that'll continue and i guess at the end of the day you know they they are smaller they're an independent studio they are smaller um they're coming out of a, a you know a small part of the world like they do have you know these things going for them and, and, and as a new zealander i can say you know that um we you know we, we take pride in our small businesses out of new zealand so i think um they have a lot going for them in that sense in terms of, you know, staying true to their values. And I, I, hope, I hope that continues because it's, uh, yeah, it's a great piece of what has built this game so far. So excited to see where next. Um, I did want to ask, you just talked about Limited before. Have you played any Limited? Because obviously Tales of Aria, as I said, that has been marketed for its uh, Limited, you know, um, gameplay for the fact that this, this set is one of the best Limited sets so far. Have you Have you had a chance to dabble at all? I have uh, quite a bit. Now, have I dabbled in a way that allows me to evaluate uh, how my skills are coming along? Not really, <laughs> unfortunately. I, I play against my brother. Uh, my brother is also a longtime TCG player. He started Magic at the same time I did. Uh, so we have 
I, I got about three boxes, split them into sealed pools. We have built sealed pools from that, played against each other. Uh, beyond that, using FabDB, I've built about 30 Tales of Aria sealed pools, I would say. Just like going through and getting comfortable with all the cards and understanding synergies. And then I take them over to Felt Table and I give the AI one of my pools and I take the other pool and I soundly beat the AI every time and feel real good about myself. Now, am I actually learning the game? Like, am I in a place where I'm going to show up at my first tournament and compete with good players? I have no idea. Like, there's there's no way for me to estimate that now, but I'm getting more and more comfortable. I feel like I'm learning a lot. I can look at two decks and tell you this deck seems far more po powerful to me and be correct a large majority of the time. So that tells me I'm getting my fundamentals in place. But as far as, uh, like, do I have a good understanding of the limited format? I have no idea. I really don't. But you, you know, yeah. you come from, you come from a game that is, you know, has limited, not, not a lot of TCGs actually have surprisingly, you know, if you, if you are a magic player or you're a flesh and blood player and you haven't played other TCGs, most of the TCGs don't have a fleshed out limited system. It's an afterthought. It's something that comes about because, players wanted or because they want to sell maybe more packs and I don't want to pigeonhole uh, businesses, but that is a big part of how TCGs have entered limited before. Whereas, you know, Magic is <clears throat> also designed around the limited format as is Flesh and Blood. So, you know, how do you compare the two? I'm just going to ask you straight up, how do you compare the two limited formats? Do you think Flesh and Blood has a good uh, limited gameplay experience? I, I really do. I really do. And I was surprised at how good it was, uh, you know, given the introduction of Blitz deck to... Um, classic constructed I, I didn't really know what to expect if sealed was just going to feel like a powered down version of classic constructed it it doesn't it feels unique uh it feels like i am game planning in my deck building you know i'm thinking about my end game which it, it just tells me like this is not just jamming your cards together there's there's something more here there is a thoughtfulness i i love how the talents and classes interact uh in this limited format i i can't wait to draft it i really hope i get the opportunity soon because i can just kind of i, I was i was a big limited player in magic certainly like my i'm probably more known for like deck building and constructed mm -hmm. but my best format has always been limited like i often say that in constructed i have to get by uh with my metagame reads and my deck building and that helps me make up for not being as good a player as some of the best uh, but limited, I've always felt world-class and felt like I could compete with anyone. So I am very comfortable in that sphere. And the opportunity to do it with Tales of Aria, which as I talk to players who have been around the game for a little bit longer, it sounds like this is sort of the idealized version of draft. Like this is finally how they envisioned draft when they were putting it together. So it's really cool. This is going to get to be my first experience. And it's, it seems really promising to me just thinking about it again from a theory and game design perspective. Yeah, it's, um, we heard a lot about Tales of Aria Limited before the set came out. Um, and I think, you know, actually, Brendan, what do you think? I mean, personally, I don't think it's disappointed so far. I've been really impressed by especially the, the draft gameplay, but also the sealed gameplay. Yeah, I mean, the draft is it's definitely, um, it's like the next level, right? Like, uh, I really enjoyed draft kind of in Welcome to Wraith, uh, even Arcane Rising and Monarch, but... Tales of Aria definitely feels different. And it's been interesting because we've had we've been able to draft kind of in our group. Um, you know, it's only twice now, and I've drafted a few times in person. But I've I sense that in terms of like, you know, the space to explore, the level of creativity you can have with your deck building is 
know, is far greater than it was before. Um, you know, where you had like these picks like generics and you could kind of stay open and, you know, and then in this one, you're, you know, you're staying open in elements, but elements are pigeonholing you into something else. And also you kind of the evaluation on your elemental cards are huge as well, because certain elemental cards only go into certain decks. Um, and it's kind of the way you draft your, your resource base and your deck identity is just so different to anything else. I think it's, it's really fascinating. And um, yeah, I think for a draft, it really is kind of the marquee format so far. Um, and I'm excited because I feel like there's a lot of edge to be gained. And, you know, with nationals coming up, multiple callings and limited uh, coming up, this is the set to do it. And I'm, I'm really happy about that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, I think it's a great format. I've been enjoying it so far. Um, yeah. I wanted to, you know, begin to the end here, Brian, just want to ask you a few final questions. And one of those is the question that we ask uh, all of our guests that come on. And that's what's your, what's your future plans in Flesh and Blood? What is Flesh and Blood look like for, for Brian going forward into next year? A good question. Uh, I think a lot of that depends on what does the world look like, yeah. unfortunately. Uh, you know, I have avoided really uh, putting myself in higher risk situations thus far. Uh, just in the interest of other people in my life, I, I'm fully vaccinated and like feel pretty safe doing these things. Um, but, you know, I, I spend time around children and like I... I I just don't want it on my conscience that like I went to go play a card game and it brought terrible consequences on someone else. So I have I've taken a very cautious approach, maybe overly cautious. I'll, I'll say that, but um, haven't gotten to do any kind of this live stuff. I'm, I'm getting to the point where I really want to put these things on my docket, find a way to do it as safely as possible, uh, mostly because I don't think this is ever going to end. So at some point, you just to be like, Am I ever going to do anything again? And I, I think the answer has to be yes, ultimately. Um, so I, I really would like to make it to a calling. I don't think I'm going to make it to either Dallas or Cincinnati. Um, I am considering SCG Con, which is the company I work for, Star City Games. They have a ton of flesh and blood events going on uh, at SCG Con this year, which is weird. I mean, it's always been a, it's strictly magic. There's nothing else that has ever happened there. Um, and I, I am considering making that trip. Um, and I probably will shock a lot of people when I sit there and play flesh and blood the entire time, as opposed to playing magic. But I, I think that's what I want to do. Uh, long-term, I would love to get involved on the content side of things. I, I think I want to know more. I want to know where I stand more before I want really put myself out there. Um, there's, there's no benefit to me making subpar content especially when you guys are doing such a great job making good content i don't feel like that's something i need to hop into but if i feel like i have something to offer i'll definitely want to share that uh and then i i miss broadcasting so so much like it was always my favorite part of magic and you know the last five years have been way more about broadcasting for me than competing and in fact my my games played in magic were mostly so i could learn the format from a broadcasting perspective so I could best convey the story uh, to my viewers. And I am hopeful that I'll get to do the same thing in Flesh and Blood, because I, I think it's such an interesting game to call from a broadcaster's perspective. Um, and I, again, like that reversed resource thing I keep talking about, it, it sets up these really good moments of tension at the end of the game. And I live for those moments of tension. Like they don't always happen in Magic. Games can often be one-sided and 
you still are there calling it anyway. But those the best moments of my magic broadcasting career were like really narrow life deficits and just like everything comes down to those very last turns. And like you mentioned, maybe it's not true, but flesh and blood always feels that way. It always feels like everything's up to, for debate until the last turn. So uh, I think there's a lot I could do in the broadcasting space too. And we'll see if that develops over time. Yeah, exciting. Well, looking forward to, to hearing you, you know, call some flesh and blood players. Uh, I think that's something that, you know, a lot of people would love to see. Um, cool. Brendan, any, anything from you before we, uh, we wrap up and hit to the, the end of time in the round? Yeah. I mean, just in the sense, I want to thank you so much for coming on. It's awesome to kind of, you know, get your perspective and get the perspective of someone who's been, you know, heavily focused in magic gathering. And I'm particularly interested in, you know, someone who's been on the broadcasting side, because I think that that's going to be, I hope that's, what's going to be what carries us as we go into this pro tour um, season in 2022 and with the kind of backing of channel fireball so far and kind of the proof of concept in um, Las Vegas, I think that, you know, the broadcasting and the way this game is displayed to the public can be taken to a level that's going to push it to greatness, right? And the execution of that is what I'm most excited for. Um, and yeah, again, thank you so much for coming on. And I want to, you know, before we kind of wrap up and do the old time of the round or whatever, uh, why don't you go ahead and kind of shout yourself out, you know, plug yourself, you know, your podcast, all that good stuff, Twitter. Sure. Yeah, you can check out our podcast. Uh everywhere i i prefer spotify that's where i listen to arsenal pass but uh just search for arena decklist you'll find it over there uh if you want my completely nonsensical and non-stop ramblings you can head over to twitter at brian go b-r-y-a-n-g-o uh i don't recommend it i i cannot wait for the day where i am able to just wander off twitter and never come back it's a horrible horrible place but uh this is what I do for a living. So I, I got to put myself out there and tell you about my content. And I try and make it at least, I don't know if amusing is the right word, uh, interesting. I try and make it interesting over my Twitter page. So you can check me out there. Cool. All right. We'll drop you details awesome. as well in the description. But thank you so much, for, uh, Brian, for coming on. My pleasure. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Anyway, well, active player turn zero, one additional turn. That's time in the round. round.